All right. Well, as the notorious boxer Mike Tyson once infamously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, which I just love. And I don't know how you felt about when you first heard um, that we were doing the, the book of Isaiah. Maybe you were like, oh, I love this book. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so sweet. And then you just heard that first chapter read. <laughs> it feels like a punch in the mouth. You're like, oh, <laughs> is that what we're going to read for 66 chapters? <laughs> oh, joy. <laughs> like, <laughs> it does feel like a punch in the mouth. It is very um, impactful, right? And Yes, um, so as we were inching closer and closer to the end of our um, series in the Gospel of John, uh, our, our shepherding elders got together and we asked, hey, what, what, what do our people need to hear? Uh, what, what book uh, do we think we want to go through? And it felt like, without a doubt, everyone said, we need to go through the, gospel, or through the book of Isaiah. We want to go through the book of Isaiah. And it was just like, okay, are we sure we want to do this? <laughs> and everyone's like, yes, it's so good. And some of you have told me, like, I'm so excited we're doing Isaiah. It's so good. Are you sure? Uh, <laughs> but why? Why is this book so good? Well, Isaiah, not only is it like the second longest book in the entire <laughs> Bible, <laughs> uh, it is, it, Isaiah is known as one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Like one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, and he is the most cited prophet in the New Testament. So the New Testament seems to think very highly of him, and that they, as you heard this morning, Jesus and others are quoting Isaiah over and over and over. And so Isaiah is known far beyond than what we might think about it um, in, in the New Testament and the times there, as well as Isaiah is known as, as some call it the fifth gospel. And so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. Because uh, Isaiah is known as the evangelist. The, the writings of Isaiah, as they become clearer and clearer further down the road, um, speak more about this suffering servant or the suffering savior 700 years later than what the writer is actually writing that time, right? And so that, that it, is, it is one of these books that just points us to Jesus in such a beautiful way that it felt like this is a no-brainer. We, we need to come to Isaiah. And so, yes... It is intense, and it's going to get intense at times, but it's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. And we hope you can see both. I think we need to see both of those. Uh, and so here's, here's where we're going to go for today. Uh, I just want to give a little intro into the book of Isaiah, um, and then we're going to, the simple uh, plan for this is it's... Andreas? Yep. All right. We're going to preach like this, and we'll see if I, you know, I use my hands a lot, so hopefully <laughs> I can keep them close by. All right. Let's try that again. The intro. It's bad. It's really bad, and it doesn't have to be that way. So that's where we're going. It, the intro, it's bad. It's really bad. It doesn't have to be that way. So, here we go, the, the introduction. And so let's just go 
a couple of things about Isaiah, right? As we said before, uh, it, it's a book that's about 700 B.C. before Christ. So 700 years, 740 around there, before Jesus Christ shows up on, 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 into the world. Um, he, Isaiah lives during the time that's the decline of Israel in the shadow of this superpower, Assyria. And Isaiah speaks the word to a people, as described later, that are deaf and blind, meaning that as Isaiah speaks to them, they don't want to hear it. They close their eyes to it as well. And so he's been tasked to go speak a sermon to someone who doesn't want to listen to it. And so as a preacher, that's just such a joyful opportunity. <laughs> and so you've been asked to go preach to a people who don't want to show up to your, to your church, which is great. Um, and so he's going to warn them, and they won't listen to it. And so Isaiah is a prophet. And you've heard that term maybe, um, maybe before, many times, you may be not sure what you're thinking about. Sometimes when we hear prophet, you may have seen some prophets on your timelines. Uh, and you've had some people uh, prophesy on Facebook or on Instagram, and they're like, you know, if you would just smash that like button or, <laughs> you know, subscribe, uh, then I, so many blessings will come your way. And me as the prophet, I'm prof prophesying that over you, that all of your requests are yes and amen this week. Have you had anyone like that? Hopefully I'm not calling anyone out in our church. I promise it's not like a sub <laughs> tweet in that regard. But I do see that a lot. Uh, maybe not from us, but I do think that's sometimes what we think about prophets. But that's not what a prophet is. A prophet is literally the mouthpiece of God. And so a prophet is supposed to be speaking God's words, voice to God's people. It's just a mouthpiece of God. And so many times you'll see throughout this book and you see throughout prophets phrases like, The Lord says or thus saith the Lord, or, or Yahweh says over and over and over, because it's supposed to be, you're supposed to be hearing directly from God here in this time here. And most of the times that phrase is followed by, the Lord says, quit it. <laughs> that seems to be a repetition uh, in these, these prophets. And so prophets typically, they speak to both the ethical as well as the eschatological um, and so the ethical is the, the moral compass of God's people that, it, that God is speaking to. And many times, as we see through, the, as we're going to see today, that when God speaks to that, it's, it's his people are violating these, these laws of God. And they're, they're violating social justice um, elements in such a way that God says, I will not tolerate it. But it's also eschatological, and that's that fancy word that just means something in the future, right? Uh, these, the, the end of this. And so when prophets speak, yes, they do speak in the future, but I would say 85, we'll come up with that number, percent of the time, when, when prophets speak, it's speaking to the ethical time. It's just speaking to the what's going on in that day and time. But there are times when the prophets do speak about something in the future. And when that happens, in... in the laws of the people were, if that prophecy didn't come true, they stoned the prophet. So, modern day prophets that say all of these things will come true, and they don't, what do we say? Uh, whatever. They took it serious, right? If your prophecy didn't come true, they stoned the prophet. Because you're supposed to be saying, I am speaking for the Lord. And therefore, what the Lord says ought to come true. So, let's look at Isaiah 1-1 here. Isaiah 1.1, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Now, it says here it's the vision. 
Um, and, a, and, and really, it's, it's a collection of visions. It's not just one vision. It's a collection of visions that spans over about 25, maybe 50 years. And so it's just a bunch of visions that have been written down, combined together here. Um, and, a, and a vision is, it's an encounter with God. And so it's an encounter with God where, where God imparts some special revelation, uh, sometimes intuitively, uh, many times in dreams. And so you can think of the visions, these dreams that are happening. Um, but it's a message from God himself and, and it's speaking to his people. And some wonder with Isaiah, because Isaiah speaks to um, events that happen long after his death, they wonder if there's multiple authors of Isaiah and that's fine if you want to go that route. We can talk about it. Um, but I, most church tradition and history sees it as Isaiah's words. And if a prophet is speaking about things in the future, it makes sense that he would be speaking about things past his time. And so that, anyways, that, 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 there's, there's thoughts about that, that maybe it's his disciples that are speaking into the future in this way. But, and so Isaiah has this vis- vision concerning what? These two nations Judah and then the southern kingdom and Israel, the northern kingdom. And you ask, why them? Well, it's because they are God's people. God is speaking to his people who he's delivered out of the hands of slavery. You can think of Moses delivering them out of the hands of slavery that he's led with judges. And then he led with kings, both good and bad, mostly bad. And now you have Isaiah speaking to this nation of Judah. And you can get the picture that Isaiah is going to get very political in this book. And now you might be saying like, ah, politics in church, like it just, it, it sounds like you, you're allergic to it. And I get that. But like politics is just the work that is required to form a common life together, right? Like it's just the work that's required to, to, to get people together to do, to do things for the common good right here. And so I'm all for us not being partisan here because I think in our two-party system, both are woefully um, inadequate. But, but I, I, I can't ask the Bible to not be political because, one, it, it, just, it just is. Um, but also because God is so concerned with not just individuals, but he's concerned with whole groups of people. And whenever that happens, you have to speak into these political realms. And so what we're seeing here is that God does speak to these, these political nations, and he's speaking to this nation of Judah. And, and remember, in this, during this time, I said that there was this, this superpower that was, at, that, that was in charge during that time, and that would be Assyria. Now, I think that's around 900 B.C. to 609 B.C. is the nation of Assyria. And Assyria is the single most important force during that day. They were the, they were the evil empire. They were... They were um, Nazi Germany during that time, and Josiah or Isaiah says, I'm going to speak to you about this nation of Judah in your relationship next to, living next to, being neighbors to this evil empire. And so who does Isaiah talk to? He says, I'm Isaiah, he's prophesying during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. If you're like me, you just go, I don't care. <laughs> Maybe you heard that and you're like, that means nothing to me, all right? Like, I, I get it. I, I, I'm with you if that's where you're at. Maybe you're not. Um, but to me, that means nothing, right? I'm not the historian. Some of you are. But for some of us who, like myself, got really bored just saying those names, um, this is like a presidential advisor saying, 
hey, so I was the presidential advisor for like the last four presidencies. So I was with Bush and Clinton and Obama, right, and Trump. And, and you could say, okay. And when that, when that happens, the first thing that comes to mind is you're like, oh, okay, so you were a part of that administration. And, and all of a sudden, all of the, the policies of that administration come to mind. All of the the legal aspects, the, the things that they implemented come to mind. And so when Isaiah is saying, I was, I was an advisor to these, these kings, you can start thinking about those things, all of those, those laws that came into play during that time. And so like even now, if I said, you know, Reagan, some of you guys might be thinking, okay, the, the war on drugs. Or if I said, make America great again, you know who we're talking about, right? And so they, there are these things that these policies that we just connect with the, these leaders here. And so Isaiah is this prophet speaking to the policies that these kings are trying to enact. And, you know, he, if he was there during the Reagan era, he might say, war on drugs? Really? <laughs> really? Like, we know what you're actually trying to do. We know what you're actually trying to get across here. And so it's clear Isaiah has an ear to the kings and the people in charge during that time. In fact, it's even more clear because Jewish tradition tells us that Amos, Isaiah's father, uh, was the brother to a guy who was King Amaziah. And so that would make Isaiah royal blood. And so Isaiah is an insider speaking to other insiders, right? And so if the tradition is, continues to hold true, though, Isaiah wasn't always beloved by all those kings. So as he's calling these kings out and saying, hey, this is a terrible policy. This is a terrible thing we should do. Not everyone seemed to particularly want to listen to him. More clearly, the end of his life, one of the kings that he spoke to actually saws him in half. And so that's where Isaiah's end comes. And yet he boldly speaks to these kings. And so this just feels like, as we're, we're going through this book of Isaiah, it just feels like a really intense episode of the West Wing, right? This just feels like a really, really, really dark house of cards, darker than we might think, right? And so there's a lot going on. And whenever we think of politics, I mean, if you're like me, just a, a, a flood of negative em, emotions comes just coming through my head about, like, politics. And you're just like, man... Everyone is just only about power. It just feels like everyone is just thinking, like, how can I bribe this person? And how can I scratch their back so that they scratch my back? And, 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 and I'm, I'm just being honest. I feel like this is ruining our country. Like, this is not just at the federal level. This is at the city level, right? This is the way that we always just do things. We just fudge the numbers and adjust the stats and fix the books and shining up horse dung and calling it gold and selling it so that majors become colonels and mayors become governors and pretending to do good, honest work while one generation tells the next generation how to not do the job. This feels like this is what politics is. And it's just discouraging. But what if... What if you actually had someone to speak into those matters and actually speak to those governors and those mayors and those presidents and say, woe to you. How dare you do that? And that's what we get with Isaiah. It's so beautiful. Verse 16, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't that be glorious? If we had a prophet speaking to some of our leaders like that, just, <laughs> but that's what we get in the book of Isaiah. And that brings us to our second point is, it's bad. Like, so what's the state of the nation? It's bad. 
Verse 3, the ox knows its master, the donkey its, own, its owner's manager, manger, but Israel does not know. And so God is saying, I don't even recognize you. Like, I don't even, I don't even recognize you. Some of you all have been saying that to your family these last couple years. As you're talking to your family, and they may have said something or, or did something in such a way that you're like, I, I don't even know who you are anymore. And more particularly, God is saying, not that I don't know who you are, it's saying you don't even know who I am. God himself has not changed. And you don't know who I am. I'm shocked at who you've become, Israel. Verse 4 says, you're a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. Given means just corrupt to the bone. God is just saying, things are bad with you. A few verses later in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, when, now when the people there heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, to them that was, that was um, hearing about these disaster sites of epic proportions. Now, this, this analogy breaks down, Malcolm reminded me, um, <laughs> when we talk about cities of that, that we can think of in relation to that, but when you think of like Pompeii or you think of Hiroshima, some, these are disaster sites that you think of, just something just destroyed the city so completely. And that's what God's saying about you, Israel, that you are Sodom, you are Gomorrah. And we sometimes, when, sadly, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of the issue there was, and if you've been up on some of the talk on this, that the issue there was gay sex, that the reason God destroyed this city was that. But that doesn't seem to be the case because Ezekiel spells it out for us in 1649. He says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Read that again. They're arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and did not help the poor and the needy. Is that America? <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> so their primary issue is that they're apathetic about the most vulnerable. Apathetic about it. And so don't you see what, like sometimes we think of the Old Testament God as just being so cold and mean and just full of wrath. And we're like, oh, I just like the New Testament God. But the Old Testament God, yes, there is that wrath there. But the reason that God gets angry isn't because he's just an angry, wrathful God. It's out of love for his people. Like, wrath is not an attribute of God. But wrath is a manifestation of God's attribute, primarily love. Because when you, when you love something somewhat, so much, you love someone so much that it hurts, and someone tries to exploit them, Someone tries to hurt them, Trump, someone even murders them. Of course you respond with wrath because you love them so, so dearly. And so the Old Testament is God's, it's a picture of God's love for his people so much. And they keep fumbling and keep losing and losing what God wants for them. And it makes him angry. And so God cuts through the fluff and he punches them in the mouth by calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. And goes on to say in verse 23, your rulers are rebels. They partner with thieves and they all love bribes and chase after gifts. <sighs> you wonder why we chose this book. <laughs> 
So nationally, there is corruption. Now remember, Assyria is this superpower, and they're, they're impeding on Jerusalem during this time. And now Judah, the smaller nation here, has a decision. Do we stand with Israel? Do we stand with them against Assyria, or do we cower to the big superpower? If we stand with them during this time, then, then Assyria is going to come after them. Or maybe, maybe they just turn a blind eye to, the, to this, this evil empire impeding on our, our, our brothers and sisters up north. Um, you know what maybe we could do, and this is a decision they have to come to at some point, is maybe we can get help from our former enemies. Maybe we can go down to Egypt and get Egypt's help to fight Assyria, the same Egypt that enslaved you for 430 years. Do you see, like, how deeply wedded the politics are involved in this time here? And you can see some of that that's happening in our modern day here. Like, the question comes up a lot. What do you do against such evil? Like, when evil has no rules stopping them, like, it feels like being good, doing the right thing is, is a negative thing. Like, it holds you back. And so what do you do when evil it feels so strong? Do you give in? And do you, do, you, do you have to lie and cheat and steal to actually beat our enemies? Or maybe we have to get into bed with our old enemies? This is like, as one commentator says, this is like one mouse asking a cat, for help against another cat. The cat is the only one who's going to win in the end here. Verse 23 goes on. No one defends orphans or widows. That's the most vulnerable in the society. Basically, he's saying that you care nothing of justice or social justice. And even those of us here today in this church who might say, but I do care about justice, I do care about social justice, like, I would say that we do up to a point, right? Like, we, we could say something like, well, I put up the black square. I, I marched. And, and are we as a country finally ready to talk about reparations? Like, 2020 felt like a turning point. It felt like this moment when everyone was ready for something new and some change, and we had all this momentum, and what did we do? We changed the cream of wheat logo. That was, that, that, that's, that's a start. Or maybe, maybe we just, we put slogans on football fields. Okay, so what did we do? We, we just rebranded is what we did. That's all we did. Like, did we actually change? Change is going to come about only when we sacrifice and only when it hurts. Like, we haven't changed because it hasn't cost us. And what is it going to cost us? What is it? Why would we actually want to change? It's because we actually care for the people who are being the most oppressed, the most exploited. Gandhi says it this way, The true measure of any society can be found in how it treats the most vulnerable members. I think that's just a, a perfect picture. The true measure of any society is how it treats its most vulnerable members. You can think about that even in your own city, your own neighborhood. How do we actually treat our most vulnerable here? Like right here in, in Waco, Waco ISD, district-wide has a reading proficiency of 30%. Way below the state average. We have a math proficiency of 34%. Staggeringly low. And so do we care about these things? 
Do we care about having access to jobs and to health care and to affordable housing? Like, if not, God is trying to tell us, I don't even recognize you. I thought you cared about these things because that's what I care about. And this is happening right in our own community. And so the first point is it's bad. The second point is <laughs> it's really bad. Not only is Israel doing all of these terrible things, they then try to baptize it all with religion. <sighs> and God says in verse 13, stop. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. You ever hear, think you'd hear God say that? Like, can you believe that he's saying, like, he's saying, I hate your praise more than you do. And some of you guys hate praise. And God's saying, I don't want it either. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. You think I need it? Like, your worship is detestable. I cannot bear it. You ever been in a room with someone that you said, I can't even bear being in the same room with them, and you had to walk out? That's how God is talking about Israel's worship right now. I can't even be in the same room with you. I've got to get out of here. Are there churches today that he would say that to? Go down to verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. He says, I'm going to plug up my ears during your prayers. Now, we might think, wow, like, shame on them. But <laughs> I think we, sh we shall just take a little sense of where we're at as a society, as a church. We can just say these names. Mark Driscoll, Robbie Zacharias, Carl Lentz, Franklin Graham. And we just stop with individuals, presbyteries, denominations, churches, all consumed by power and greed and lust and not a love for the Lord. Like, I feel like the show The Rings of Power could not be more relevant than it is now. Like, the lust of the human heart is driven by power, and then we want to baptize it with Christian motivations, and it's just disgusting. Too dark of a view here? <laughs> this is why I titled this sermon, I Hate All Your Show. It's actually a, a line from a John Foreman song, which was inspired by Amos 5 and this passage right here. And we thought we had the audio. You know, it's mosaic. Sometimes things don't work. <laughs> so I'm just going to not sing it. I'm just going to read it. <laughs> but the, the, the lines go like this. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your praise, the hypocrisy of your festivals. I hate all your show. Away with your noisy worship. Away with your noisy hymns. I stomp up my ears when you're singing them. I hate all your show. Instead, let there be a flood of justice, an endless procession of righteous living, living. Instead, let there be a flood of justice instead of a show. That's a powerful, powerful song. You can YouTube it later. Why does God hate the show? Why does God hate this and say, I don't want to hear anything about this? He says, it's because you're being so hypocritical. Like, you can't pray on Sundays and then pray on your neighbors Monday through Saturday. 
He's saying, I can't stand that. What God detests is not our prayers or festivals or worship because the Lord commanded them. What he abhors is the reality behind those prayers. And so are we really here to worship? Are we? Or are we just here to put on a show? Are we here to just alleviate our consciences? Man, I feel like that, that phrase rings so true. Your actions speak so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. I say that sometimes to my kids. <laughs> Your actions speak so loud, I cannot hear what you're saying right now. Like, do we really believe this stuff, or is it just empty words? All of us. All of us need to really consider that. Like, I do, some of us will say, well, I don't really want to change, but I don't want to feel guilty either. Like, do you really want to change, or you just want it to, like, appear that you've changed? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to baptize all that I do by God. Lord, forgive me for what I've done, but also forgive me what I'm about to do. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> that is evidence that it's just a show. Only when people are watching will I actually care. You think that's true? But whether it's seen or not, what we do Monday to Saturday matters equally as much as what you do on Sunday. And so there is no question that we here today are just as guilty of using religious behavior to manipulate God as any Israelite was. So then what? If I just take a moral inventory and realize that I don't care about justice the way I thought I did, and maybe I, 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 maybe I got a little whiff of how rotten that it actually is, then what? What becomes of this? And that's where our last point is, yes, it's bad. Yes, it's really bad, but it doesn't have to be. I love this verse here in, in verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. I love that. Let us settle the matter. Let's talk it out. Let's argue it out. Though your sins are like scarlet, though they are stained and they've stained you, you shall be washed you shall be washed clean. And some of us are wondering, well, how? How can I be forgiven? How can God actually wash me clean when he doesn't even want to listen to me? If he says, I hate all your show, I'm stomping up my ears, how can I even approach God if he says, I'm not even listening to your prayers? And some of us are wondering that this morning. Maybe I've gone too far. Maybe I have been that person, that hypocritical person, that person who's just put on a show. What then? Is God done with me? Will he ever listen to me again? And I want you to hear this, because this is not me. This is God. He says, let's settle the matter. Let's, let's talk it out. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Now, if you don't think your sins are scarlet, you don't care whether they're white as snow. And that's important. If you don't think your sins are scarlet, if you don't think your sins are actually bad, then you're not going to care whether God has forgiven you of them. Like, if I don't actually see that my hands have caused blood and are full of blood, then I'm not going to actually do anything about it. This is kind of true in a funny way. You think about this, the, the stankiest person in the room is the one who doesn't know that they stink, right? That ever been you? Just me. Cool. <laughs> Just, just, just the Thompson family. <laughs> My wife's working back in the kids' room. <laughs> but the minute you get a whiff of yourself and you go, Whew, why did no one tell me about this? <laughs> right? 
then you start realizing something needs to change. And it takes you to actually smell the reek and the odiousness of what you're carrying with you for you to ever want to change. Like, that makes you say, I need a shower. (laughs) I need to change. And so can you admit something with me this morning? Can you admit that something's not right? Can you admit that I'm not the person that I thought I, I, I would be one day? I'm not the person that I feel like God has made me and created me to be. And if you can admit that, then you can reach out for Jesus for salvation. Like, then your sins will be white as snow. And only when your sins are, and you're able to admit that, can you actually wash those sins away. And so the first step is recognizing, I am a sinner. And then you're able to address it. Because it's not by the sacrifices that we bring to God to actually address those sins. It's by the sacrifice that God brings to address those sins. God actually says, you know what? I'm going to bring something to the table you never expect. I'm going to sacrifice my own life. I'm going to have Jesus lay down his life for yours. And we're told by Isaiah later that by his wounds, who? By his wounds, by Jesus' wounds, we will be healed. Now, you see, Isaiah is an intense book. But Isaiah's name means God saves. And I think we need to remember that as we're going through a very intense book, that the heart of Isaiah is not to beat you up, but to get us to a point for us to realize I need a Savior. And that God is saying, I'm coming to save you. And so God's ultimate desire is not to wipe his people out, it's to wake them up to wake them up to who he is, and eventually to save them. And then, guess what? Not just to whisk them away to heaven right then. He says, I want to save you, yes, eternally, but I want to save you right here on this earth. I want to save you from your addiction to your own destructive behaviors right here in this earth. This is why in the midst of his offer for salvation to to, to wash you clean, a verse before that in verse 17, and I love this verse, it says, learn to do right, Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. I mean, this is deliverance. Like, this is the offering that the Lord wants. When you come to offer a sacrifice, offer this. Learn to do right. That's just so basic, right? Not very clear, not very specific. Just do right. How can you know what that is? Well, once your heart is changed, you start learning those things. You actually be able to be discipled and to learn what those things are that you can do right. And then to seek justice. Now, let me just encourage you, because anytime we talk about justice or social justice, sometimes you can immediately feel like this overwhelming guilt of all the things you need to do. Let me just say this, a phrase we use a lot here is that no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And so is it, what is it that, that, that you're passionate about or that, 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 gets you angry like the Lord is angry? Is it unfair policing? Is it the prison system? What is it that the Lord's burdened you with? Is it, is it immigration? Is it health care? Is it education? Find an area to zoom in on, and not just individually, I think that's where we always go, but like what systems are you in a position, maybe you're in a, a position to actually make real change in, and to not just change one person, That, as Malcolm said, that, that one person on the road, but maybe what, what, what's happening on this road that's, that's taking care of all these, these people? Like maybe we need to put some, some lights on this road. 
Maybe we need to actually care about this road in a, in a different way. So what systems can we be thinking about to actually ensure justice? Then defend the oppressed. Who is that in Waco? Who is oppressed here in Waco? Think about that. Take up the cause of the fatherless. We have a growing community of, of, of foster parents here at, at Mosaic, and I love it. And you can join in. You can talk to Catherine about that, right? We, we would love for you to do that. But you don't have to become a foster parent to do that. You, but we still need to take up the cause, and we should get involved somehow. And there are many levels to do that. Again, you could talk to myself or Catherine, whoever, to do about that. But then it says, and plead the cause of the widow. The widow is some of the most the easiest person to exploit in that day. Who is that today? Maybe those experiencing homelessness? So whatever it is, no one, not, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. What is it that you, you feel passionate about that, that stirs you up? Like, Christian, this is our rally call, Isaiah 117. I want you to take this verse to, to pray over it this week and look at it and say, where is that God has calling me to live out my faith on Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday? How does that affect how I vote? How does, the, how does that change how I live? Because the gospel is more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card, though that is important. The gospel is the freedom from the despair that's happening right here in our world, Right? It's the despair of this earth that we want the gospel to move into and to bring real hope and, and life into right here now. And so this morning, I want to encourage you. Let's get rid of the show and let's live this out. Let me pray.